Happy Holidays from the DSR Network. We are deeply appreciative of our members and the year that we've had. To celebrate the holiday season, we are offering a 50% discount on either your first month or first year of membership. Members enjoy an ad-free listening experience, bonus content for virtually all of our shows, an invitation to the members-only Slack community, and more. Best of all, if you become a member in the month of December, you can take 50% off the membership price for the first month or for the first year. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code DSRHOLIDAY at checkout. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code DSRHOLIDAY. Thank you very much for your support. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hi, I'm David Rothkopf, CEO of the DSR Network, producer of Deep State Radio and many other podcasts that you've come to know here. We're starting something new which is a series of high-level conversations with senior people in the U.S. and other governments that we are going to conduct in public, and then we're going to present them as podcasts and also as videos that you can view on our YouTube channel. We're going to do this uh, in conjunction with the New Republic, and the first of these was just held. Uh, At that event, we welcomed Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor to the President, And we had a great wide-ranging conversation uh, that included questions from Mike Tomaski, the editor of The New Republic, myself, and also members of the audience who included former senior government officials, reporters, and members of the DSR network. If you're a member of the DSR network and you want to participate in one of these meetings, uh, we'll promote them periodically and you should just reach out to us. Uh, for space. It's a special benefit of being a member of the DSR network. For now, I'd like to turn to the conversation with Jake Sullivan, which covered a wide range of issues and which I think you'll find extremely interesting. Enjoy it. All right. Thank you very much. My name is David Rothkopf. I'm the CEO of TRG Media. Uh, We uh, put together something called the DSR network, which is a podcast network that reaches hundreds of thousands of people. We get about a million downloads a month for a lot of podcasts, the first of which was called Deep State Radio, uh, which was tongue-in-cheek. And about 70% of our listeners knew that. Uh, 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 But we forged ahead nonetheless. And it's a very great pleasure for me to see so many people here who have been listeners or participants with us for a long time. Uh, And uh, uh, we are uh, joined uh, in this venture um, by uh, our friends from the New Republic. Uh, This is Mike Tomaski, who's the editor of the New Republic. Um, And Mike, why don't you explain why you're here? (laughs) 
<laughs> uh, why am I here, as James Stockdale said? Uh, yeah, no, thanks, David. Uh, Jake, thanks for coming, and thank all of you for coming. What a great turnout. Uh, yeah, just very quickly, uh, the New Republic is um, uh, going to start doing some podcasting with Deep State Radio, and um, the idea, I think, when we scheduled this was to have a specific announcement about what that podcast would be called and who would be hosting it and when it would debut. I know the answers to none of those questions <laughs> uh, as we sit here tonight, but uh, but we're going to get it off the ground uh, next year, and by next year I mean January, not like next November. Uh, so uh, if you go to TNR.com, as I hope some of you do, um, you'll see soon some kind of announcement about that. But uh, uh, we're really excited to be working with David, whom I've known for a long time and whom I edited a lot at the Daily Beast. And um, I've edited Jake Sullivan, too, for that matter. I won't say which one of them produces cleaner copy. Although you did say you edited me a lot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so that gives you that gives you some indication. Uh, of course, uh, we're here tonight to have a conversation um, with U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan. But to set the stage for that, what I'd like to do is invite uh, uh, to provide some introductory remarks uh, my partner, the fellow who uh, uh, I founded TRG Media with and who has made a lot of it possible and who has been uh, the wisdom behind a lot of what we do, and that's Bernard Schwartz. Bernard is in Florida, but for all of you, he's on that screen there. Bernard, you look very jaunty, uh, <laughs> and we're very happy you could join us. And I know you've got some opening remarks, so you could begin with those. I'm here on behalf of my family, and um, um, I'm enjoying the good weather. For those of you who are jealous, well, that's the way it is. <laughs> on behalf of David and, uh, and Mike and myself, I would like to welcome you to one of our periodic meetings to interchange ideas and achieve unity in a current problematic and confused environment. Further, of extreme importance, is a need for our political candidates to choose their issues and explain their position prior to the next election. If we do that, if we do that successfully, and get out, also get out the vote in 2024 election. The beneficiaries will be the American people and our country. Listing just some of the significant issue points out of the variety and the difficulty. What are they? Recessions, if and when. Inflation, if and when. Border control. Abortion. Student loans, the Ukraine, the Mideast, healthcare costs, indictments, many, many indictments, the strong economy, the deficit, Taiwan, China competition, the deficit, and other issues. These are too many issues. The voters' focus must be on the above list to come up with a simpler effective voting approach. We're gathered here today to discuss your issues and solutions, your ideas on how to create an appropriate approach to the 2024 elections is what this meeting is all, meeting is all about. 
This meeting and others that follow leading up to the election are made up of donors, think tanks, leadership, business people, opinion leaders, policy experts, like those gathered in this room. Your views, your questions are an important ingredient to reach our goal. It is hard to imagine a better guest than we have tonight, given the issues that are in front of all in, the, in front of all of our minds. Jake Sullivan is the U.S. National Security Advisor. He has served as President Biden and the administration in his, in his capacity since 2021. He has emerged as one of the president's closest and most respected aides at a time when the national security challenges we face are particularly complex and demanding. Previously, he served as Director of Policy for President Barack Obama as National Security Advisor to Vice President Biden and as Deputy Chief of Staff and Director of Policy Planning to Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. He is not only doing an extraordinary job as National Security Advisor, but he has won recognition as one of the most thoughtful, creative, and strategic people ever to hold that job. I hope you would join me in welcoming the National Security Advisor to our forum. I very much look forward to joining in as David and Mike and all of you engage in this conversation. Thanks very much, Bernard. Um, uh, it's uh, great to have you here, Jake. Thanks for having me. Um, um, this is uh, an apolitical forum. This is just to focus on uh, issues. Um, and I think I talked it over with Mike a little bit before. Uh, and if we just stick with breaking news this week, we won't have time to go over all of the issues. That's true. Um, but we're going to try. Uh, and we'll talk, Mike and I will ask you some questions for the next 20 or 25 minutes, and then we'll take some questions from the audience if that's okay. That works. Um, okay, so I, I think you said as we were walking in that you're going from here to meeting with President Zelensky. And uh, of course, the president, uh, President Zelensky is meeting with President Biden tomorrow. Uh, I think we've also heard some news today uh, that it's unlikely that the Senate is going to get a bill through uh, on funding Ukraine um, before the holiday break. Seems like the House is not going to do that either. Uh, so this is going to put us past the end of the year deadline that the White House has talked about for getting this money to Ukraine. And so I thought it might be useful if you could tell us where this stands and what you think the consequences will be uh, if that funding is delayed much further. Well, um, as you said, I'll have the chance to, to sit down with President Zelensky tonight. And of course, I'll join the meeting that he has with President Biden tomorrow, which will be an opportunity for the two of them to compare notes on how things are on the battlefield and every other dimension of this, uh, of this conflict. President Zelensky will also spend tomorrow speaking to the full Senate uh, and meeting with Speaker Johnson, as well as other members of the House of Representatives, to directly make the case. He's his own best advocate and is the best advocate for his country for why it's so urgent that, that Congress pass this funding. Um, look, the, the arithmetic here is simple. Uh, we have now, as of the end of December, used up all of the funding that Congress has given us to supply weapons to Ukraine and then to replenish our stocks 
with the weapons that we've handed over. And so if Congress does not come through, uh, we will begin to enter a period in which we are unable to give Ukraine the air defense interceptors it needs to keep Russian missiles from crashing into Ukrainian cities. Um, we will not be able to provide the ammunition necessary for them to continue advancing and hold the line against the Russian attacks, which have been intensive in the East over the course of the past few weeks. And as weeks go by, that will have a material effect on Ukraine's battlefield position. What's really incredible to me is that um, when this war broke out in February of 2022, people did not give Ukraine a month to live. And um, Vladimir Putin set out to conquer Kiev in a week and to erase Ukraine from the map and to erase the idea of being Ukrainian from the history books. That was his stated purpose in launching this war. Well, he failed. Ukraine stands strong, proud, free, uh, vibrant. Ukraine is rooted in the West. And the only way that Vladimir Putin can succeed is if we walk away. As long as we stand by Ukraine and keep the 50-nation coalition that we pull together to stand with Ukraine, Ukraine will continue to prevail and Russia will continue to fail in its efforts and Vladimir Putin will continue to fail. So that this is like up to us. We could do this and we could do it on a bipartisan basis. The other amazing thing is that if you gave a straight up or down vote to Ukraine funding and just said, um, do you support Ukraine funding to each individual member of the House and the Senate, Democrat and Republican, you'd have an overwhelming majority of members saying, yes, I do support Ukraine funding. It's gotten tied and held hostage to other issues that have nothing to do with Ukraine or defense of the free world. Um, nonetheless, President Biden has said that he's prepared to have a discussion about border policy on a bipartisan basis, not just a take it or leave it proposal. And those talks are ongoing. And my hope is that at the end of the day, after a long and winding road, uh, the Congress does come through and pass the aid to Ukraine. I believe that is still possible. And we are convinced that we have to pull out every stop to make that happen. Before the end of the year? It would be good to have it happen before the end of the year, because if it doesn't happen before the end of the year, we are going to enter this period where we no longer have the money to be able to supply them. So the deleterious effect on the battlefield will begin to manifest. I can't predict exactly what will happen in the next two weeks. Uh, what I can say is that the, the Biden administration is going to continue to press. And President Zelensky, on behalf of 40 plus million Ukrainians, is going to press the Congress tomorrow to ask them to discharge their responsibility to stand up for a friend in need. Couple of questions. So you think that despite the um, you know the the Republicans in in the House particularly and to some extent in the Senate who are opposed to Ukraine aid are the vocal ones and the ones who get press attention. But you think that that a strong majority of House Republicans are for aid continuing aid to Ukraine? I, I think that if you if there were a straight up or down vote um, where you ask the question. Uh, one by one across the 435 members of the House mm -hmm. of Representatives, you would have a strong bipartisan majority for aid to Ukraine. Mm -hmm. Yes. In fact, the Speaker himself, who has voted against previous packages, has yeah. come out and said he believes that Ukraine should be funded. So the issue right now is not about the merits of funding for Ukraine. It is for certain members, as you say, but not for a strong majority of members. The issue really is this linkage uh, to the border. And while we believe there has to be uh, both resources for the border, which were in the Biden supplemental, and uh, we're open to a discussion about policy. Um, nothing should hold Ukrainian money hostage because it is in the American national security interest to see that money go through. 
what do you think you have to give them on border to, to get the aid? Well, I'm unfortunately probably the wrong person to ask. I'm not the person sitting in the heart of those negotiations. Mm -hmm. I will defer to my colleagues who are talking to the Democrats and Republicans in the Senate who are really in the cockpit on it. It's, it's the members who are in the cockpit. And obviously, um, you know, President Biden has tapped members of, of his team to speak with them about the Biden administration position. Um, I spend my waking hours really trying to focus on how we can answer every last question the Hill has posed to us on what this money is doing for Ukraine, why the value for dollar we have gotten in this has been remarkable, and why continued resources are so much in our national interest. David. Let's look ahead in Ukraine to 2024. Let's stipulate that the funding comes through. Might not, and, and we could, if you wish to talk about what the consequence for prolonged uh, absence of the funding as you may, but um, it looks like Vladimir Putin has every incentive to drag this out. The leading Republican candidate seems predisposed towards uh, supporting Putin, not supporting Ukraine. It's been his track record. Um, that has to make it more difficult to prosecute this war over the course of the year ahead. When for the Russians, a tie is a win, essentially. Let's just get to November and see what happens. Uh, where, whereas for the Ukrainians, you know, this kind of wasting conflict is in their country and is eating away at them. Um, do you foresee a change in Ukrainian strategy and Western strategy for the support of Ukraine as we go into 2024? Well, first, I would say any decision to negotiate is ultimately going to be up to the Ukrainians. And, you know, we've held to this mantra, nothing about Ukraine without Ukraine, and we are not pressuring them to go to, go to the table. But, and I certainly think it is a valid uh, theory that Putin just wants to wait to see what happens in November of next year. Um, your logic is sound. That may be the case. But I think it also may be the case that he would love to see the war end sooner. And that's because I believe that Russia is putting on a braver face about how well they are weathering all of this than the reality suggests. And frankly, the, the coalescing, coalescing conventional wisdom in the West is, oh, this is all just fine for Russia. I don't believe it is just fine. They are bleeding men. They are bleeding money. Um, they are driving growth, but that growth is entirely the production of more armaments to send to Ukraine to gain no material territory on the battlefield. And, um, and so the pressures of occupation of a foreign land that does not want you there are real and they only grow over time. So our strategy going into 2024 is to continue to resource Ukraine so that it can both defend against Russia's efforts to take additional territory, which are ongoing as we speak, they're attacking in multiple points in the East, and to help Ukraine continue to make progress on the battlefield while also uh, taking steps to reduce Russia's capacity to uh, effectively terrorize Ukraine. And if you put all that together, the goal is to put Ukraine in the strongest possible position on the battlefield so that it is in the strongest possible position at the negotiating table when negotiations come together. And when they do, that will be up to Ukraine. But that's the heart of the strategy that we are pursuing. 
And we believe that strategy, if you look out over the course of the past 18 months, has enabled Ukraine to take back more than 50% of the territory that Russia previously occupied, has allowed Ukraine to mount a stalwart defense against waves of Russian fighters trying to break through the lines in the east, and has allowed Ukraine to build out an air defense system in parts of the country where they are now exporting grain and iron ore, where they now have their capital city, Kyiv, vibrant and alive uh, under the protection of patriots from the United States and Germany and other countries. Um, so we will make adjustments uh, to refine based on battlefield realities, based on the best methods of increasing the cost to Russia for, for waging this war. But fundamentally, the strategy remains based, rooted in the notion that we want to give Ukraine as much leverage as possible uh, for when they ultimately go to the negotiating table. Uh, let's switch to Israel. Um, I want to ask, I guess, kind of a two-part question. Um, I only know what I read in the papers. What can you tell us, what are you willing to tell us here about what kind of real progress the IDF is making against specific Hamas targets in such a way that might you know, bring this war to a reasonably swift end, if such a thing is possible? And, I, and then... I guess my second part of the question is, you know, if it drags on, do you foresee a day when uh, there are conditions attached to USAID? Well, first, with respect to the progress that Israel is making, I'm mainly going to allow them to characterize that because they're up close and personal, yeah. obviously on the ground there, and we are not. So, um, you know, I would prefer for them in their own voice to kind of lay that out for the public. But I'd make a couple of observations. The first is that uh, in Gaza City, they have managed to identify and begin to neutralize a truly expansive network of tunnels that form the backbone of the military capacity of Hamas in the north. And they're working through, uh, you know, ways in which they are going to render those tunnels ineffective going forward. They have been able to take out senior brigade commanders, battalion commanders, company commanders, uh, and a significant number of fighters. And now in the south, in Khan Yunus, that's really the beating heart of the Hamas leadership that is located, has been located in that area. And so they're equally in a ground operation trying to get after the infrastructure that has supported the command and control for Hamas writ large overall um, and are looking to neutralize that as well. Ultimately, they're going to continue to work at getting the most high-value targets, the, the authors of the horrible massacre on October 7th, including Sinwar and Daif and Issa, the top three Hamas leaders in Gaza. Um, and they have not yet, obviously, um, gotten to them. So I think they can walk through the military progress they have made, and they can also walk through what they still intend to try to achieve. We have had uh, detailed conversations behind closed doors with Israel, and, and I'll uh, be going to Israel um, myself soon uh, to have further conversations with the prime minister, the war cabinet, Late this week, the military. Right? Um, I think we haven't announced it yet, oh, but it's okay. soon. But it's soon, very soon. Um, Twitter, Twitter announced. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and... Part of that conversation involves what is the duration of the high intensity element to this campaign going to be? Yeah. I think we can anticipate that over time, Israel will continue to search for and try to deal with 
the Hamas leaders if that takes more time. But in terms of the high-intensity military operations of the kind we have seen in Gaza City and in Khan Yunus, we will be talking to them and have been, President Biden most recently with Prime Minister Netanyahu, uh, about what their vision is for how long this goes on. But I think for now, those conversations are best left behind closed doors. And so uh, I won't yet entertain the hypothetical in your question because we sure. want to we want to follow those conversations through. Yeah. And aid. Uh, That's what I mean by the yeah, hypothetical oh, in your oh, question. Yeah, I got you. Yeah, because you said if. Yeah. You know, then etc. My what I'm saying is, we have chosen a strategy um, different from uh, the one that that you've kind of hypothesized in your question. Yeah. And we believe that that strategy has allowed us to move the Israelis on humanitarian assistance to a pause that led to a substantial release of hostages. Um, and we believe that that kind of um, interchange, frank, honest, and largely behind closed doors, will put us in the best position to give our advice uh, on questions like what the strategy is to move from high intensity to uh, uh, high intensity operations to a different phase of this conflict. So when the vice president was in Dubai, she met with a number of regional leaders. Um, she spoke with some others on the plane coming back. Uh, she's been focused on the day after, uh, you know, and you know, we, we, no one can be sure when that day after is. There've been some estimates that the Israelis may try to wrap up this phase of the operations up in the next four to six weeks. Um, uh, but the day after, as the vice president describes it, involves um, a security solution, a political solution, an economic solution. Uh, the security solution involves somebody overseeing and stabilizing Gaza and to some extent the West Bank. The economic solution involves infusing money to rebuild a part of the world where 100,000 buildings have been destroyed and, and so forth. Um, the political solution, particularly thorny, because it, it almost necessarily implies a change in Israeli leadership and a change in the leadership of the Palestinian Authority, a revitalization of the leadership so that it can carry things forward to the, to the next stage. Um, how realistic do you think it is to be discussing such things now? And are the wheels turning in any of those areas? When you say such things, you mean the, the military, political, and economic solution? Yes. Yeah. Um, I think it's not only realistic, it's imperative, which is why the vice president was engaged in the conversation she was engaged in. And, and she came back and reported to the president on both the opportunities, and there are real opportunities to come out the other side of this crisis and build something better going forward, and the very real obstacles and challenges for each of those. Uh, you know, we've talked about an interim security solution in Gaza. Um, that is easy to say, much harder to source and build and Presumably implement. that's not Israeli occupation. Well, we have said that we do not support continued right. Israeli occupation or reoccupation of Gaza, we would like to see an, an, an interim security solution other than that. And then the question is, what exactly does that look like? And we've had intensive conversations with regional partners, uh, with the Palestinians, with the Israelis, and with others in the international community on that question. There are a lot of challenges that have to be worked through, but 
that only reinforces the notion that we've got to be having that conversation now, not waiting until actually the day after. Same thing goes on the economic piece of this. Uh, we have to begin thinking about not just where the resource is going to come from, but what are they going to go to? And how do you build that in a way that also has a revamped and revitalized Palestinian authority prepared to be a partner in the deployment of those resources? And then finally, on the political solution, uh, we've made no bones about where we stand on what the ultimate shape of that is. It's a two-state solution. And you know, Israel and a, and a Palestinian state living side by side in, in peace and, and security. Um, and the road uh, to that, of course, as history has told us for decades, uh, is not a straight one and um, is going to require overcoming a whole series of obstacles. But President Biden has set this out as a matter of principle. And uh, the vice president, Secretary Blinken, and, and others in our government have been engaging all of the various parties to talk about how we go from where we are now to that and, and what the right formula is to get there. But again, because of the complexity and the difficulty, we don't have a day to waste. Um, and that's why having those conversations even now, um, largely those conversations are taking place in private because they they require the grappling with a lot of very complex and thorny challenges, um, but they are ongoing and they have to be ongoing and, and we're going to continue to drive them forward. And, and Vice President Harris, Secretary Blinken in particular, will play critical roles in that. Um, I'm going to ask a, um, a political question, a, a somewhat easier question, but, uh, but I think it's something that everybody here would like to know your views on. Um, paint for us a picture of the world that you see if Donald Trump returns to the White House. Oh, no. I know. <laughs> um, in, I, I, in Ukraine, in China, in, in the Middle East, and maybe other places that some of us aren't thinking about. Look, I, I will let the former president lay out his own vision for what he wants to do in a second term. I, I really don't want to be in a position sitting here to characterize that. I would point out a couple of things, though. Um, I think President Biden and, and the former president have very different views when it comes to the value of alliances um, and the role that alliances play in, in America's national security. Um, and at the heart of our support for Ukraine has been a 50-nation coalition that we have built um, with American credibility and American capacity um, and the reach and resolve of a country that is able to mobilize that kind of effort on behalf of a fellow democracy. Um, and I think you can see what the former president has said about the, that conflict and see he would take us in a much different direction. Um, but I will stop there because I probably should not, uh, you know, Oh, go on. I think I'm in a better, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm better advised to, be cautious in, in my in my commentary on that issue and sort of leave it to others, especially to you two guys. I'd be much more interested in hearing what you guys have to say about that question than, than what I have to say. Oh, I think you know what we have yeah. to say about we're, that question. We're, we're pretty predictable. We're pretty that transparent one. on that. Yeah. Um, look, I just want to say to everybody that I'm going to ask another question. Mike may ask one more uh, quickly, and then we're going to turn to you so that if you have questions that you'd like to ask Jake, we'll have 15 minutes or so for that. Uh, and I'll get up and I'll walk around with a microphone just exactly like Oprah Winfrey. Um, I'll yield my time to our Oh, okay. Friends. All right. So I'll right ask here. you one last question. Um, when you came into office, uh, 
if you had had your druthers, or maybe because of the way things looked, it looked like China was going to be the centerpiece, shifting finally to a focus on the Indo-Pak region. Um, and, and Ukraine and Israel-Gaza have gotten the best of it. But it strikes me that we've made some really substantial strategic changes. Re I mean, of a kind that happen very seldom, not just within an administration, but among administrations. Uh, elevation of the Quad, establishment of AUKUS, establishment of economic relationships, um, a sort of recasting of the relationship with China and identification of areas of competition, but also of communication, um, uh, uh, a prioritization of the whole region. Um, and, and, and I guess my question is, you know, are you satisfied with how far that has come? Are there still important steps in your priorities for this this focus on on what clearly is the the central geopolitical relationship of the decades ahead well so first i i do have to quibble with your characterization that that ukraine and and um israel gaza have kind of gotten the best of our ability to work on the end well, actually i didn't i didn't say that i, I what i said was I think they've been a distraction for the public. Yeah, away from. I see. Things. I see. Yeah, because look, I mean, in the in the heart of, in the teeth of this terrible crisis in the Middle East, um, and as the war in Ukraine has has continued to proceed, President Biden hosted all of the leaders of the Asia Pacific in San Francisco for the APEC conference, and also had the small matter of a significant uh, summit with President Xi Jinping that generated, I think, very meaningful results and frankly vindicated the approach I think he has taken, which has been an approach of competition, but managing competition responsibly so that it doesn't veer into conflict and so that we can work together on issues where our interests actually converge. And that summit produced important progress on fentanyl, which uh, is the number one cause of death for Americans aged 18 to 45. It produced a resumption of military-to-military -military communications at every level so that we can avoid mistake and miscalculation. And it created, I think, a framework for us to manage strategic competition with China going forward effectively. Second, I've just come back. One thing you left off your list, which we're very proud of, is the Camp David Trilat, uh, US, Japan, yeah. ROK. And I've just come back from the ROK where I held a a trilateral meeting with the national security advisors of, of Japan and the ROK. And that trilateral partnership on security, on technology, on economics, um, the sky is really the limit. And when you put it together with the Quad, with AUKUS, with our enhanced relationship with the Philippines, with the way we've elevated our relations with both Vietnam and Indonesia just in the last few months, um, I think we have stitched together an approach in the Indo-Pacific that has put the United States in an incredibly strong competitive position, all while managing the relationship with China in a, in a strong and responsible way. If the one place when I think about uh, the U.S. approach and where there is still real unfinished business, it is our value proposition to the developing world, to the global south. Um, 
I've gone up to the Hill and advocated to both Democrats and Republicans to just give us a relatively modest amount of resources for the reform and um, enhancement of the international financial institutions, the World Bank and the IMF. And that sounds pretty technocratic, pretty boring, and maybe not a huge political winner. But what does the rest of the world look for right now? They want investment in infrastructure, in clean energy, in digital technology. They want to deliver for their people. And it's not that they're saying to the United States, hey, we don't like you anymore. We we go with China. They are eager for the United States to come be their partner of first resort. And this is true in Southeast Asia. It's true in Africa. It's true in the Americas. This is not a question of, you know, um, our countries turning away from America. They're coming to America and asking, can you be our partner? And we right now don't have the full set of resources we need to be able to deliver for them. So in the supplemental that the president has put forward is a very modest amount of money for the World Bank, which could end up mobilizing $25 billion in concessional finance that could help these countries with the challenges that are top of their priority list. And if we don't provide that, where are they going to go? You can't beat something with nothing. And this is a case that I have made um, and frankly gotten a lot of heads nodding, even among Republicans who are pretty skeptical about foreign aid, but we haven't yet delivered on it. And, and I think for me, as I look out over the next year and the next five years, being able to deliver an effective value proposition to the rest of the world, with, which is well within our means to do, is one area where I think the gap between where we are and where we need to be is probably the widest. Um, so that's an issue that I, I really want to get after. It's something I've made a, a personal priority um, and will, you know, am certainly not going to give up on because I think um, it can help secure America's role in the world for the foreseeable future if we can deliver on that. Yeah, great, great answer. And I'd like to, um, oh, well, let me turn to the great Rosa Brooks. Um, other people will have to introduce themselves, mm-hmm. but I will introduce... I will, I will introduce Rosa Brooks. Thanks. Thanks, David. Jake, thanks for coming. And Rosa. because this is Deep State Radio, where we're always preparing for the apocalypse, uh, I thought I'd ask a, a sharper variant Rosa, of... Rosa, by the way, is our apocalypse correspondent. <laughs> Excellent. I thought, I thought I was... You're, you're, my, you're my co-correspondent. A variant right. of David's question that's a little, a little more gloomy. Um, uh, when it comes to threats on over the horizon... What keeps you up at night that is not related to the items on the first page of the newspaper? That, you know, it's not Israel, it's not Gaza, which which do suck up a lot of oxygen in the media world. Certainly, like yeah. what what are you, what do you worry about that that you're concerned that we're not paying enough attention to? I have a clear answer in my head, but I can't actually judge whether or not we're paying enough attention to it because it has started really to come more and more into the public consciousness, and that is um, the core security risks of generative AI, in particular, the convergence of AI and bio and AI and cyber. And these are two areas that can be fundamentally transformative of the threat landscape for our worst nation state adversaries, right down to, you know, uh, individual lone wolf actors. And, um, And I think being able to take steps to try to put some guardrails around the advance of these systems without denting innovation. That's, that's been a major focus of ours over the past several months. The president issued an executive order recently 
on AI, where this was a, one of the key elements. Um, how do you make sure that there's an, there's trust and safety built into the, to the frontier models so that we are not unleashing upon the world the capacity to do things that 20, 30 years ago would have required the mobilization of only the most sophisticated countries in the world. So um, that's probably, and then AI presents all kinds of other confounding challenges that are fundamental to the future of the international order. Um, so I wouldn't just limit it to cyber and bio, um, but those are the things that I think the most about right now. What are the steps that we can take from a policy perspective to stay ahead of this challenge, given how fast it is moving and how slow frequently policy processes move? Um, but um, yeah, that's how that's how I would answer that. I personally think that's a great answer because I've spent the past year work, working on a book on this. <laughs> um, and as soon as it's done, I'll get to you. Excellent. Excellent. Um, okay, so Dmitry Alperovich. Hey, Jake. Hey, uh, so um, Vladimir Putin just announced that uh, he's going to raise the defense spending in his budget to 40% of the overall budget next year. And uh, about half of that budget is going to be deficit spending. Now, Russia has some challenges because of your work in raising of capital markets uh, around the world. So they're um, spending their reserves. Do you have estimates that you can share with us on how long they can keep this going um, at this level of spending? Well, you know, I said in, in my earlier answer to David that the kind of coalescing CW that all is well with the Russian economy, I, I don't accept that. I think that there, there are some glossy statistics that suggest things are okay, but there's a lot underneath. And, and you make a, a very important point. Um, when oil prices are relatively high, Russia salts away a lot of money to build up its war chest so that when oil prices are relatively low, they have a cushion. Uh, in today's uh, oil markets, they are not salting away money. They are spending it down. And we have some estimates, um, but I'm not actually sure if I'm, prepared, I'm allowed to share them publicly, to be honest with you, so I won't, just to err on the safe side, of how what their spend rate is and how much they have left. And what I will say is this is going to be an increasingly uh, serious challenge for them, how they um, – sustain a level of basically hard cash to be able to pay for this huge wartime spending that is driving the GDP numbers in their economy. And that's something that I think increasingly uh, their central bank and their, their economic team are aware of. Whether or not Putin is aware of that, I don't know. I'll go to our other apocalypse correspondent. I think John Wolfstall wanted to say something. Hi, Jake. Hey, Thanks John, so much for you? doing this okay. and all, all you're doing. Um, I'll be nonpartisan about it and say that neither President Biden uh, nor any future president should have the ability to bypass the Secretary of Defense, the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, or even the Commander of Strategic Command and order the launch of nuclear weapons. But unfortunately, the current chain of command does allow that. For any other use of military force, there have to be written orders that are passed from the SecDef on down. President has an opportunity to change that. It's been suggested in a number of different fora. It hasn't been picked up. As you look towards the, at least the last year of this first term, is that something that's on your agenda? Everything else has been managed amazingly well when it comes to nuclear risks. It seems like this is a fairly easy way to insulate against some of the instability that could be brought. Is that something that's on your agenda at all? I can tell you it is not right now on our agenda, but now that you pose the question, it will be. <laughs> I will go back tonight and say, hey, what's the deal with the question? Not, you know, I'm not unfamiliar with the issue generally, but it hasn't 
sat at the core of the the debates that we've been having over um, uh, the nuclear posture review or the employment guidance or other you know uh, critical documents. So um, it's a completely worthy question, uh, one that we should be taking a look at. So this is one of those cases where you're actually posing a question is going to generate taskings out of tonight. So thank you for that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. You're delighted, I can tell. I don't have to do it. So I'll, I'll come to you in a second, Tara. Thank you, Oprah. Um, I'm Emily Tampkin. I'm a journalist here in DC. Um, and I understand that you don't want to speak about uh, conversations with your partners, but what you have just said about the day after Israel's war and what the administration has said is not what Israel is publicly saying, right? Which is no two-state, no PA. And this is leaving aside the Palestinian perspective, right? And how they emerge from this moment with mass death in Gaza and violence in the West Bank. So if you could speak to the public gap, right? I'm not asking you to, to divulge personal information, but just the gap publicly between the U.S. vision for the day after the war and Israel's vision or, or lack thereof for what comes after this. Thank We're going to have to have a robust discussion about this. And, um, President Biden's views on the two-state solution aren't a secret. They're very long-standing. He's not going to back off them or be quiet about them. And obviously, the views of many in the Israeli political leadership, their views on the two-state solution are equally not a secret and well-known, and they're not going to. Um, so there's going to have to be give and take here. And we're gonna, by give and take, I mean in a discussion about how we get on a path um, that, that we believe ends in a place that is both um, the smart thing to do and the right thing to do. And um, obviously the, the nature of the private conversations on the subject are much more detailed, um, much more textured than the kind of public exchanges of broad propositions. Um, but um, this is something we are going to have to work through uh, as, as we move forward, because from our perspective, there is no other credible pathway uh, to a sustainable outcome than the two-state solution. Tara McGowan. Thanks, David. Um, thank you, Jake. I uh, run a uh, left-leaning local news organization, um, Courier, and have become a little bit of an accidental expert on disinformation and misinformation online. And um, we've started to see uh, a lot more um, disinformation coming from China uh, related to certain things. We saw it with the Maui fires. We've seen some other things. Um, and I'm just interested in your take on how concerned we should be about Chinese disinformation in the 2024 election um, and what, if anything, can be done to pre-bunk that for the public, for China and other uh, foreign powers that might get involved? Actually, um, your timing is good because uh, in the coming days, the relevant uh, elements of the U.S. government will be putting out publicly kind of their assessment of foreign influence as it relates to uh, both the most recent election and threats with respect to the upcoming election. And, you know, I, I will kind of defer to that characterization, but fundamentally uh, we acknowledge and have engaged directly with the PRC on the issue that there is uh, foreign influence um, being propagated by elements of the PRC government. Uh, and this is a concern of ours. Um, and, and we have been straightforward with the PRC about this uh, at very senior levels. And we'll continue to work to deter uh, and respond to it because from our point of view, foreign influence coming from any country, particularly 
influence, a malign influence that has that's rooted in misinformation and disinformation is is not acceptable. It's an assault on our sovereignty and our democratic discourse. And so we will um, take the necessary measures to deal with it. And this is an area where AI makes it much more complicated, right? Where you can imagine AI-empowered disinformation campaigns. Will we have the capacity to pre-butt, to identify? Is that something else you're working on? Yeah, we are working on that. Um, That is something where the speed with which the technology is advancing makes the development of the countermeasures, the tools for identifying and dealing with it, it's very difficult for them to keep up. But it's something we are trying to close the gap on, you know, seeing the threat and stopping the threat uh, as much as, as fast as we possibly can. Go ahead. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, my name is Manuel uh, Carmona. I work for the European Union delegation to the U.S. here in D.C. And uh, my question is about actually climate change and environmental degradation and the links with the, with security, the U.S., but also globally. And um, uh, as you probably know, the EU has issued a strategy linking you know, uh, climate change, environmental degradation, uh, weaponization, for example, of, of uh, water use, of water scarcity, etc. And, uh, and I would like to, uh, to know your views on, on that. Uh, we've been speaking uh, with, with some uh, colleagues in the Department of Defense on that. Um, and aside from that, I would like to, to know your views on where does the, uh, Atlantic, the partnership for Atlantic cooperation stands on that. Is that part of that, of that context? Yeah, thank you. So first, thank you for asking about the Partnership for Atlantic Cooperation. It was launched at the UN General Assembly this year. It involves countries in South America, North America, Europe, and Africa. And it's um, a really innovative new platform for countries with the shared Atlantic community to come together around issues exactly like this, issues of scientific cooperation, of climate change, uh, environmental degradation. And so this is a major topic for um, you know, the, the set of countries that have come together in this partnership. And more generally, I think you're absolutely right. And, you know, Secretary Austin be the first to say that the intersection between climate change and security uh, is only becoming, unfortunately, a busier intersection uh, because uh, conflicts over resources, uh, movements of populations, uh, the extent to which our own military's capacity to operate effectively globally is being pressurized by climate change. So this is something that we frequently come together at the principals table and in the situation room about. Um, We most recently held a principals just before our delegation went off to COP28. And one of the agenda items on that was how does the United States help drive the conversation around the intersection between climate and security And what are the ways in which we can build a more resilient security footprint and also prioritize issues that may seem like environmental problems today, but can turn into very serious national concerns, uh, national security concerns tomorrow. Uh, So it's something we will continue to, uh, you know, place a very high priority on. Last question, Mark. It's Mark Hosenball, formerly of uh, Newsweek and Reuters, and now... Retired, but writing for other publications, including some magazine called The New Republic. Anyway, um, 
I'm interested in a person called Hunter Biden and the extent to which, if at all, Hunter Biden has engaged with your office or sought to engage with your office in the National Security Council or other agencies that you oversee uh, or deal with, and also the extent to which uh, you or anybody else in the U.S. government that you know of has had to deal with issues on behalf of the United States government related to Hunter Biden. No, and I'm not going to comment further than that. Uh, I was looking for a very short question and answer there <laughs> to bring us towards our conclusion here, and I think I, I, I was very successful in that regard. Um, uh, we have come uh, towards the end of our time here, uh, and uh, uh, I, I do want to uh, 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 give Michael and Bernard a chance to offer a bit of a closing remark, and then I'll offer one. But Mike, do you have something like that? Uh, well, I want to thank everyone for coming, and, and thank you, Jake, and and um, and just say or, or just ask you in a quick question and a quick answer. Um, uh, you know, uh, just you know, when when you talk to Republicans about what's at stake, what do you say is at stake in Ukraine? I mean, I. I do not think it's hyperbole to say that that basically the security of Europe is at stake and therefore the risk of American men and women having to go deal with another massive war in Europe as we have before mm. if we don't work with Ukraine to stop Russia in Ukraine, mm. that's at stake. And beyond that, what does it say about the United States of America if we've stepped up to the plate, asked dozens of other countries to step up to the plate to support a country uh, under attack by an authoritarian invader. The help we've given them has helped them succeed in standing up to that invader. And then we just pull the plug and walk away. I think that the implications of that will reverberate for years, if not decades to come. And so now's the time for America to stand up and be counted as we historically have been. And frankly, as I believe the American people um, all of these kind of theories that eventually the American people would just give up on support for Ukraine, I have not seen that reflected uh, in, in the public opinion data. I believe the American people still want to see the United States standing for the basic principle and proposition that a free people deserves to be free, and, and we should help them uh, be able to achieve that. And if we don't, uh, you know, I really think it, it, is, it undermines the very idea of who we are as a country. Um, and there isn't a, really a greater stake than that in a way. So my hope is that um, at the end of the day, a strong majority of Democrats and Republicans will come together as they have multiple times before and say, yes, we are going to continue to discharge our duty here. And I still harbor optimism that that will happen. Bernard, um, we are coming towards our conclusion. I'm going to say a word or two in a moment, but I wanted to know if you wanted to offer any words of conclusion or thoughts. Well, only that I'm very thankful that we've had such an important, strong, informed voice this evening. And to have a conversation as we have had without political contest, but rather looking at the issues is a lesson for how we should conduct ourselves going forward. I want to thank both of you for being um, on the front line of questioning. But most of all, I want to thank the audience 
who participated so well. Thank you very, very much, Bernard. I want to say one last thing here, and this is just a kind of editorialization that people who listen to Deep State Radio may expect from me a little bit. Uh, and that is, uh, I've written a few books on the NSC. I've actually met every national security advisor who uh, was alive in my lifetime. Um, and, uh, you know, it's premature to write the final verdict on the Jake Sullivan NSC, um, uh, because I hope it goes on for a while. But um, I've never met a national security advisor who has uh, been as effective, capable, thoughtful on as wide a range of issues as Jake. Uh, and there is actually something even more to it than that. Um, and you may not think of it this way, but I don't think since the establishment of the National Security Council in 1947, um, there has been a moment where, in addition to the day-to-day -day, uh, challenges of global affairs that come up, wars and conflicts and diplomatic fights, there have been such enormous strategic shifts um, as there were right at the end of, of World War II. And that there's not just one, but there's two. There's the rise of China and the Asia Pacific. And I think there's the rise of the age of AI, yeah. which is epical. It may be as big a change in the way we all live as we've encountered in the past, not 50 or 70 years, but in the past 250 years. Um, and the fact that you're handling all of that, grappling with it, and being thoughtful about it um, is our collective remarkable good fortune. And so I want to thank you. Thank you, David. Uh, please join me. Thanks, Mr.